Okay, so following Christ, there is rarely instant gratification, right? I mean, sometimes there is once in a while, right? There, there, there is. But when you follow Jesus, we all know that it's a long game. That it's not about driving up to the Culver's drive through lane or McDonald's drive through lane. You order, and then five minutes, well, I mean, McDonald's five minutes, Culver's, you got to wait longer for quality people. Ten minutes later, you've got your order, right? Instant gratification. And actually, if you wait ten minutes, you're like, oh, what's it taking so long? Right? The ten minutes is instant gratification. You're not going to have so many opportunities of instant gratification if you follow Jesus. We know this is a long game. We know that blessings are coming. Uh, we know that, that the new heaven and new earth, if they're not coming in this life, they'll certainly come in the life to come, but we don't have that instant gratification. So, so many of us, myself included, ask us the question, why don't we just find happiness in some other things? Maybe other things that God told us not to find this happiness, this instant gratification in. Right? Jesus said, hey, Love your enemies. <laughs> no, that's hard. I don't want to do that. Right? And when's the last time love made the news or love got you clicks or likes or reshares on social media? Right? That, that doesn't. Love doesn't make the news. Rage and anger and outrage? Ha <laughs> ha. That makes the nightly news. That's what gets you attention. So why not just give in to that? Jesus said, the greatest of you will be the servant to all. Do you know what happens if you serve other people in the name of Jesus? You know what happens? You become a floor mat. Like you do, right? When you serve other people, you will be taken advantage of. People will use you. People won't say thank you. Uh, and in fact, they will, they will mistreat you and they'll say, oh, that guy's not leadership material. No, Jesus said, hey, don't be like the Gentiles who love to lord over others. Instead, the greatest of you must be the servant. But we look at the other side and say, no. But we've got to have influence. We've got to have political influence. We've got to have power, right? So, so in our work, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in, in the voting booth, online, we say, ah, you know what? Nah, I don't want to you know, like serve others. No, 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 no. We have to be leaders. We have to have influence. Let's grab onto that political power. Uh, we understand that God has uh, created sex, and that's a great thing to be enjoyed between a man and woman within marriage. But uh, what if you love each other, right? What, what if you just, you know, like you're fairly committed? Why not? What's the harm? Instant gratification, happiness, right? Waiting is difficult. So why not just grab gratification now? Why not now? You know, the thing is, is that we can make an idol out of anything, can't we? Like even good things. We can say, hey, I love sports so much and it can consume a person. You all know somebody who's totally consumed by sports, right? And if that sport event is happening, nothing else is going on. Well, it's your son's birthday. Doesn't matter, right? <laughs> Church is going on, right? It's Easter, no, right? Like it just consumes people or they get this hobby, Right? Or, you know, some of my fitness friends. I can't remember the name of the one. What was the one a few years ago everyone was doing? CrossFit. Thank you. Yeah, they're still doing it, right? Yeah, that's right. I've just unfollowed them on Facebook because it's this whole religious activity. They have to post. They're required. If you do a sit-up, you're required to post it on social media, right? And I mean, fitness is good. Fitness is a wonderful thing. But you can elevate its level of importance. Sometimes uh, we are so miserable that we self-medicate. 
We're so miserable and we pray and we ask God for help and we're absolutely in the dregs. And we pray and we just don't feel anything or we don't even bother to pray. And so we say, I just want to feel better now. So what do we do? We uh, abuse alcohol or we use illicit drugs or we uh, use pornography. We, we self-medicate ourselves to find that bit of happiness. What ha- Hopefully I hit all of us at some point here, okay? I've hit myself a few times. What happens when we make things more important than God? That's what an idol is. That's what a false god is. When we make things more important than God. We say, I know what God wants from me. I know how he wants me to serve him. And, and you make a conscious choice. I'm not talking about the, the, the sin that you kind of fall into, because you do, right? Like you yell at someone, you, you curse somebody out because you're really angry and had a hard day. And then immediately you're like, oh man, shouldn't have done that. Go and apologize. I, I'm not talking about the sins that we just kind of fall into because we are weak as human beings. I'm talking about the sins that you say, you know what? I know what God wants and I am not going to do it. That is an idol. What happens when we make things more important than God? Well, Israel had a similar situation, if you recall, just recently in the text, in the story. Moses came down from the mountain, gave them the law, and all the people said, yes, we agreed to the law. Which did include curses, by the way. If like, you don't follow the law, this will happen. But they said, yes, we, we, we agree. We will follow the law. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, written on two stone tablets, front and back, written by God's own finger. Cool. You've never gotten an autograph that cool in your life. Those of you guys who get autographs. Chapter 32, verse 1. Moses is still up on the mountain. When the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, remember Moses' brother, and said, Come, make gods for us who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Uh, So, right, he's up on the mountain for, we're told earlier, 40 days. It's a little over a month, and you're like, oh man, what happened to this guy? We just agreed to this, and now he's up there Thunder's still blaring away and lightning, and, and, uh, but nothing's happened for a while, so maybe this is just a natural phenomenon. Uh, what, what do we do? Make more gods for us. We don't know what happened to him. So Aaron, what should have you done? Aaron should have been like, no, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But there's probably more of him. We don't know exactly Aaron's ideas here, but, but he says to them, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So I, what I think Aaron was trying to do, like imagine if someone said, hey, uh, I, you know, let's go, let's go out to this baseball game, right? And someone said, okay, you can go to the baseball game, but you have to give me all your wedding rings. And you're like, oh, well, I don't like baseball that much. <laughs> right? Give me all your engagement rings, your wedding rings. Like, no, no. I think that's what Aaron was trying to do. He was trying to say, okay, give me the things that's most valuable to you. And that way they'd be like, oh, well, we don't want it that much. But they called his bluff. That's what I think Aaron was doing. Verse 3, so all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into the image of a calf. Then they said, see, they said, not Aaron. 
So Aaron's like, okay, I made the thing you want. Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. So see what Aaron does here? Look, look. Like, so they're like trying to make this idol, this gold calf. Aaron says, says, there will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow, to Yahweh tomorrow. All right, so he's still trying to say like, all right, you guys made this thing, whatever, it's your little hobby. We're going to come over here and we're going to worship the Lord. Early the next morning, they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and go up to party. Uh, the image that any person reading within Moses' time would have understood this to be would have been, uh, the word we translate there for party probably has a sexual connotation. There's, there's like this, this uh, crazy uh, amount of drinking, of alcohol, of eating and purging and eating and purging and, and, um, and sex as a, a religious rite going on here. Um, it, it's, pretty, um, it's pretty extreme. So you have to understand where Israel's at. It's easy for us to say, ah, oh, terrible Israel, but... But hopefully my introduction ha has said, we kind of do the same thing today. Where is God? Where is God's man? He hasn't shown up. It's been a week. It's been a month. It's been 40 days. We can't, we can't wait any longer. We want to find happiness. We want to find, find something right now. And so they do. They set up this God and they have this, uh, this, this just energetic, animalistic uh, worship service which, by the way, will involve abusing other people because that's typically what happens. <laughs> the level of evil of what they did would be like, I mean, they just agreed, yes, we want, we want to follow the law, God. And then they turn around and go, oh, no, we're going to worship these idols or this idol. This is like... This is like if you knew someone and they um, invite you to their wedding, right? Husband and wife get married. And the next morning, the next morning, the husband goes out and has an affair. Commits adultery. Like what? I mean, that's kind of what Israel did. That's, that's what the text is showing us here. Um, but the reality is, again, it's not just Israel. We do that. We seek out idols. We go to church and then we say, ah, I'm still I'm having a hard time. Or, or we slip back into our old pattern of things, whether it's abusing a substance or, or whether it's uh, using online pornography or it's uh, going back to a damaging relationship that we know is not good for us, for our soul, or the souls of people around us. We do it. We seek out anger and hatred instead of the love of Christ. We're selfish with our, with our time, with our money. We're not willing to be generous and help others than the ones we know are in need. We do it all the time. We are like, oh man, we're Christians. Hold on, wait a second. Let me get online here and tell this jerk what's going on. What happens when we make things more important than God? Verse 7, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for the people you brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. Isn't that amazing? God is the one who brought them up. But now God's so angry. He's like, your people that you brought up. Moses is probably sitting there like, I don't want to bring them up in the first place. You forced me. <sighs> they have quickly turned from the way I commanded them, and they made for themselves an image of a calf. 
They bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord also said to Moses, I have seen this people, and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. Whoa. What happens when we make things more important than God? Does God just wipe us all out? I mean, that's what he's saying here. He's a Moses, I'm just going to, you stay up here. I'm going to wipe all of them out. You're going to be the new Abraham and you're going to start a new group of people right here. Whoa. Does God wipe us out? Fortunately, no. Verse 11, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, why does your anger burn against your people? You brought us out of the land of Egypt with great power and a strong hand. Why should the Egyptians say he brought them out with an evil intent to kill them in the mountains and eliminate them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger and re relent concerning this disaster plan for your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You swore to them by yourself and declared, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I will give your offspring all this land that I have promised, and they will inherit it forever. So the Lord relented concerning the disaster he said he would bring on his people. Um, yeah, this is incredible. Like, can you see Moses' growth as a leader finally? Right? When he started all this, he's like, I don't care. I don't want to do this. Please send somebody else. And now he's over here interceding for them in a very similar way that Jesus intercedes for us. Now you might say, wait a minute. You know, can God change his mind? Eh, theologically, no. But in this text, he does. So what do we do with that? That's difficult. I think this is written from Moses' perspective. So we just have to read it from Moses' perspective. This is how God, God was so angry, he could wipe everyone out, but he didn't. Verse 19, let's jump over to verse 19. Moses goes down. Those with him um, say, hey, I think uh, there's, there's a battle. And Moses is like, no, it's, it's not. It's worse. Verse 19, as he approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses became enraged and threw the tablets out of his hands, smashing them at the base of the mountain. He took the calf they had made, burned it up, and ground it to powder. He scattered the powder over the surface of the water and forced the Israelites to drink the water. Um, and then he goes on as he, after he smashes the stone tablets, uh, he grinds this up. And why does he do that? I think the answer is in Numbers, uh, where this is a supernatural test to see who is guilty of sin. Also, he's now like, well, now you're not going to enjoy your drinks of water. Um, you get to drink in your own sin. But, then he goes on, and as he sees the people are still out of control, actually, I'm sorry, with, Moses, with Aaron, he goes, Aaron, what happened? And Aaron basically says, well, I don't know what happened. I threw gold into the fire, and boop, out comes this calf. It was supernatural. Don't blame me. Right? Oh, what terrible leadership. Just say no. That's all he had to do. I mean, they probably would have killed him, but just say no. So Moses, he's so angry when he sees them. There's revelry still going on, which again, with these quote-unquote worship services of pagan deities, usually there's abuse of other individuals going on. That's probably active at what's happening. Moses calls the Levites to himself and the people who are still revel revelrying, the people who are still abusing others in the name of this worship service, they go out and they kill them. And there's about 3,000 people. It's awful. 
I mean, you, you imagine, right? So first God sees what happens and, and, and says, Moses, I'm going to wipe them out. And Moses intercedes for his people like, no, no, these are your people. Please, I love them. You love them. We all love them. Right? And God goes, okay. Right? Then Moses comes down and he sees it for himself and he sl slams the, the tablets and he grinds it to dust and makes them drink the, the bitter water. And then he sends out the Levites to slaughter the people still worshiping this false, uh, this false god. What? I mean, the, you have to realize there's a difference between hearing about the news and experiencing the news. I remember when we were in Southern California, we had this major wildfire go through Silmar, which was just the south of us, and we heard about it, and we heard the number of all these houses that were burned to the ground and nothing, and we're like, oh man, that's horrible. And then when we went to go see one of our friends who was uh, just north of that area, we were driving up that way, and I couldn't believe the devastation. I mean, it was just, there was no foundation left. Like you could barely see the outline of where a house or structure might have been. It was just, it, it was, you know, if you've ever been to Southern California, it's like houses everywhere. If there's a square inch that you could build a house on, you will build a house on it. And it was, we, we drove for five miles and there was nothing, just nothing but ash. That's what Moses was like. He sees it and goes, oh. It's worse than he could have imagined, even though God told him exactly what happened. What happens if we put things more important than God. If we worship things, is more important than God. Verse 30, the following day, Moses said to the people, you've committed a grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I will be able to atone for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a grave sin. They've made a God of gold for themselves. Now if you would only forgive their sins, but if not, please erase me from the book you have written. Wow. Again, Moses, send somebody else. Now he's saying, look, if someone has to pay the price get rid of me. And he says this book that he's written, it's not too fleshed out at this point in the Old Testament, but we understand what he's talking about. He's talking about the book of life. Damn me for all of eternity if that's what it takes to save these people. What a transformation Moses has gone under. Verse 33, the Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will erase from my book. Now go lead the people to the place I told you about. See, my angel will go before you, but on the day I settle the accounts, I will hold them accountable for their sin. And the Lord inflicted a plague on the people for what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Whew. So what happens? Does God afflict us? Look what he did to the Israelites. They worshiped this golden calf. They elevated something above importance and, and he afflicted them. He sent a plague. Is that what happens to us? When we sin, when we elevate things as more important than God, does he, he send a plague to us? Well, sometimes. Now let me say off the bat, like every problem that we have in life and every physical disability we might have or disease, it's not always related directly to our sin, okay? That's absolutely not what anything in the Bible says. But sometimes it is. If you abuse alcohol, over the course of time, you have psoriasis, psoriasis of the liver, and um, your liver it doesn't function the way it's supposed to. If you are uh, shooting up with drugs and, and, uh, and doing illicit drugs, sometimes it affects your mind, sometimes it affects your body. And there's consequences. There's forgiveness, but there's consequences. There's physical consequences to what happens. If you choose to say, you know what, instead of being a servant leader, I'm going to embrace power. I've seen this before. You know what happens? You embrace that power and you have power and you has, have esteem and you're a, a kingmaker and you're a mover and a shaker. You know what happens? You know what happens? You know what God does often? He takes everything you have in your life because, man, when you're in that kind of leadership power, 
Just the slightest shift of the wind can make it all tumble down. And he'll do that. Make everyone's lives completely fall apart. Um, yeah. If you get obsessed with a, a hobby, you know the point that it takes precedence above everything else? All of a sudden, that hobby no longer becomes an enjoyable experience. So he, again, let me be clear. If you're going through something, right, and you have some you know, disease and illness, a, a situation, mental health problems, right, that doesn't always mean that God has, has, is disciplining you because of some sin you have. The easy thing to do is say, God, is there anything within me that's that why you're doing this in my life? And he'll reveal it to you. And if not, he's saying my grace is sufficient for you, and I'm going to work through this for my glory and for your good, and you have to trust me in it. But there are times, there are situations where we bring our consequences on ourselves, and I think that's what God's doing us doing here. So what happens? So do we just get afflicted for the rest of our lives? No, there's more. Chapter 33, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, Go up from here, you and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt to the land I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to you as an off to your offspring. I will send an angel ahead of you and will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, Hethites, Pezzarites, Hevites and Jebusites. Okay, wait a minute. So God is saying, I'm not going to go with you. Instead of going with you, which is what I said I was going to do, I'm not going to send the angel of the Lord, right? Because that, that's an important figure in the Old Testament. I'm going to send an angel of the Lord, you know? Right? Like the third string angel. He's the bench warmer. He's never actually done anything. But I'll send him with you. Verse 3, go up to a land flown with milk and honey, but I will not go up with you because you are stiff-necked people. Otherwise, I might destroy you on the way. That's how angry he is. Yeah, you ever been that angry with someone? You're like, I, I can't, like, just get out of my sight. Like, just don't let me see you for a minute. When the people heard this bad news, they mourned and didn't put on their jewelry. For the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites you are stiff-necked people, if I went up with you for a single moment, I would destroy you. Now take off your jewelry and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites remained stripped of their jewelry from Mount Horeb onward. So what happens when we make something more important than God? Does God abandon us? Imagine. Imagine if, if, if God in your sin came to you and said, okay, look, I will forgive you of your sin, but we're done. You pray to me, I'm not going to answer. I'm not going to give you peace in difficult situations. I'm not going to comfort you in your sorrow anymore. I'm not going to lead you. You're not going to have my Holy Spirit. He's not going to lead you. He's not going to guide you. He's not going to give you wisdom. And you know what? When you die, you're not going to suffer in hell, but you're just going to go to a place that I'm not there. It's just vanilla eternity. I mean, that's. You're forgiven. I don't want to see your face anymore. Could you imagine if that's what God did? Verse 7 Now Moses took a tent and pitched it outside the camp at a distance from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. Anyone who wanted to consult the Lord would go to the tent of meeting that was outside the camp. Remember, this is before, before the tabernacle was built. God gave him the instructions. It has not been built yet. So Moses puts this tent and says, we can meet with God here. Verse 9, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and remain 
at the entrance to the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. As all the people saw the pillar of cloud remaining at the entrance to the tent, they would stand up, then bow and worship, each one at the door of his tent. The Lord would speak with Moses face to face, just as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. His assistant, the young man Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave inside the tent. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, Look, you have told me, lead this people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor with me. Now, if I have indeed found favor with you, please teach me your ways, and I will know you so that I may find favor with you. Now consider that this nation is your people. And God replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. If your presence doesn't go, Moses responded, don't make us go up from here. How will it be known to known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us. I and your people will be distinguished by this from all the people on the face of the earth. Then, Moses an- then the Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing you have asked for. You have found favor with me, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, please let me see your glory. God said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he added, you cannot see my face. Wait, that's weird. Didn't it just say Moses was talking to him as if a man talks face to face? Right? And then in the same text, he says, but you can't see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. The Lord said, here's a place near me. You are to stand on the rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. So that interesting thing. So I think when the glory of God would come down upon that tent, and it says Moses talked to God like a man talks face to face, I think in in some way God's presence was there, and Moses could talk to him like we talk, but it wasn't his, his full glory. And Moses asks him, I want to see all of your beauty. I want to see everything. And God, knowing what weak, fragile human beings, creatures that we are, says, you can't fully see me. I, I would burn you. Like, not, not because I want to, but, but my full glory can't be understood by sinful human beings like you. I'll let you see my back. That's all that you can take. I think that's what's going on here. The face is a, is a metaphor in this second section. Uh, you can't look at my face. You can't fully see all my glory because you would be like a moth in a flame. Just gone. But more importantly, does God abandon us? No. No. Moses interceded for Israel just in the same way Christ intercedes for us. Do we deserve it? Absolutely. Does it happen? No. No. Verse 34, the Lord said to Moses, cut two stone tablets like the first one and I, will write on, and, and I will write on them words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. So Moses now has to cut his own stone tablets. Jump down to verse 5. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with Moses there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. 
But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Right? I think that's a contrast. Like, if you are a repentant person and you, you, you want to genuinely follow God imperfectly, but if you will, he'll be gracious to you and to your family. If you're obstinate and hateful towards him, it's going to affect you, it's going to affect your family. So I think that's supposed to be a contrast that he's showing there. It, this isn't like a curse type thing where it's like, oh man, my great-grandfather, he cursed God once, and now this is why nothing goes right. No, absolutely not. The blood of Jesus covers us. And in the Old Testament, the love and compassion of God is supposed to show you the, the contrast. You know, God God's remembers your love much more than he remembers your sin. Okay? Moses immediately knelt low to the ground and worshipped. Then he said, My Lord, if I have indeed found favor with you, Lord, please go with us, even though this is a stiff-necked people. Forgive our iniquity and our sin and accept us as your own possession. Like, how many times do you ask for forgiveness now? Has anybody been counting? Four, five times? Right? It's a pretty serious sin that had happened. Like, when you really mess up, like, I can remember there was a time where, where um, I was angry about something and I really yelled at my wife, and it wasn't when I came to my senses that I was like, hey, I'm sorry about that, right? That wasn't it. It was like for days. And it wasn't because she was holding it against me. It was like, I, like, that was serious. And I absolutely never should have, like, ever, I'm sorry. Like, multiple times. Multiple times. That's what Moses is doing here. Multiple times. So then God reiterates the covenantal obligations, which... They'd already talked about it at length. Verse 27, The Lord also said to Moses, Get this, write down these words, for I have made a covenant with you and with Israel based on these words. So, Moses is now writing the tablets. The first one, God wrote with his own finger. Now Moses has to do it. That's, have you ever engraved anything before? That's a lot of work. And there's something lost. Verse 28, Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat food or drink water. He wrote the Ten Commandments, the word of the covenant on the tablets. You know, sometimes God can restore, and God will restore, and he's waiting to restore us. But sometimes after the restoration, it's never the same. Some of you guys are familiar with Chuck Colson and his story. And it's interesting because... Chuck Colson, if you know his story, he started out as President Nixon's hatchet man, right? He was the guy who would bully people and do horrible, terrible things to people politically to get President Nixon's stuff done. And, uh, and then he had a miraculous encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. He uh, repented of his sins. He still had to go to jail. He still uh, was a convict and wasn't allowed to vote for the rest of his life uh, because of the voting laws. Um, and he was utterly transformed. And, so, and he experienced uh, Christ in prison. He started what I would argue is the most formative, important prison movement that has ever happened in the United States of America and probably around the world with caring for inmates in the name of Jesus and seeing rehabilitation, not just like a one-time thing, but a long-term success, which still goes to this day. And still he's done all that. And I say Chuck Colson, and there are people of a certain age that wince. Right? When he passed away, I think it was in 2012, I posted something on social media, and I was shocked <laughs> that there was a lot of people like, oh, terrible, man. you know, off. and these are Christian brothers and sisters, right? He had hurt them, or hurt people that, that they knew, or they perceived hurt from him at that point. And so even though he was transformed, even though Christ changed him, 
There's still something that's different. There's still that hurt that's sitting there. God's restoring Israel, but now they have stone tablets that are written by Moses instead of from the finger of God. Sometimes God will restore, He heals, He forgives, sure, but sometimes it's never the same. And uh, lastly, I think this is tragic. Verse 29, As Moses descended from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, as he descended the mountain, he did not realize that the skin of his face shone as a result of his speaking with the Lord. I mean, wow! Isn't that amazing? You know, it's God's glory rubbed off, rubbed off on him. Wow! So the first thing that should come into your mind is this absolutely beautiful image of the, a radiant person coming down the mountain. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin on his face shone. They were afraid to come near him. But Moses called out to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community returned to him. And Moses spoke to them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near, and he commanded them to finish everything, to do everything the Lord had told him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And after he came out, he would tell the Israelites what he had been commanded. And the Israelites would see that Moses' face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with the Lord. I think that's a little bit of a horror movie right there. Right? Because what's happening is he, he's beautiful, right? He's got the glory of the Lord. But the people are so fractured with this restoration process, they feel so guilty that now when they see it, it scares them. They're like, oh no, right? They're, they're, they're frightened. What should have been a beautiful moment, they are frightened with. So even though God's restored Israel, it's not quite exactly the same. What happens when we choose to make something more important than God, than Jesus? When we make something more important than God, guess what? God doesn't just say, nope, I'm done. He doesn't wipe us out, He doesn't destroy us. He doesn't say, I want nothing to do with you anymore. When we choose to elevate something more important than God, restoration becomes a long process with the help of Jesus. It's a long process. It happens, and it's good, but it's a much longer process. It's a much longer journey than it had to be before. And so I th this is Israel's absolute worst failure, I think, in the entire Scriptures. Right? It, it's just like, hey, do you having a marriage one day and then the next day committing adultery. I mean, that's how catastrophic of a failure it was. They're seeing the glory of God on the mountain and they're like, ah. I mean, I've never seen that before. I know you have never seen that before. God's glory and flame and power and, and lightning and thunder and earthquake and you're like, and it's still there and it's still burning and smoldering and you're like, um... Yeah, okay, let's worship some false god. <laughs> it's their absolute worst failure. But yet, God in His love, I think through Moses, is showing that yes, restoration is possible, but it is a process. Not because of who God is. God could just go boom and restore, but then Israel would go back to the sin over and over again. Restoration has to be a long process for us as individuals because of who we are. We don't change immediately overnight. It takes time. It is a process. That's why Moses had to intercede for them time and time again. That's why God was showing him, you have to, <laughs> when you've really messed up, you've really got to ask for forgiveness, right? When you've really messed up it is a long journey 
Years ago, when I was, um, I think about 12 years old, my parents bought an old conversion van and we went out west. Like that's actually it wasn't an old conversion van, it was a new conversion van, but whatever, it's huge and all of us could fit in it. And we went out west from New York and we were going to go cross country and like experience all the things. And it was really cool. It was a good experience. And uh, one day we were in Wyoming. We'd been in the car forever, you know, and you're in the car with the same people for like two or three weeks and like you're not liking each other all that much and we're all frustrated and, like, ah. and we've been driving a long time and we're like, ah, and we're heading to Yellowstone. And we're in Wyoming, dad pulls out the map. Okay, the normal route is this. It'll be about an hour, 15, hour and a half. Oh, we can't take it. Tim knows where this is going. <laughs> and on the map, on the map, if you look at it, there's this road. And it's like, I don't know, 10, 15 miles. And you're like, oh, well, that's much quicker. Beartooth Pass, let's take Beartooth Pass. So you know what I'm, now you know what I'm talking about. Beartooth Pass is not a shortcut because on that map, it just showed, here's a road, you can get through this way. And if you measure it, it's like 10 miles. It's not. The road goes up the mountain and then down the mountain like 20 miles an hour with traffic. So they're not going 20 miles an hour. I don't know. It was like two and a half, three hours, four hours. I think I'm still there. It took forever. I mean, we're already like, ah, and now we're stuck behind these slow drivers like, ooh, look at the sights. We're like, we just want to get there. We hate it so much. Right? So in trying to stop, in trying to, to jump over that hour and a half trip, to try to take the quick way, to try and take the easy way, we actually ended up taking the long route. That's what sin does. Sin, we look at the map and we're like, oh man, I'm miserable. I can be happy if I do these things. If I just hold on to power, if I give in to my rage, if I go and I can have risky sex, if I can, if I can just access this pornography, if I can use these drugs, if I can abuse this alcohol, if I just could have enough money for this hobby and I didn't have to deal with my family anymore telling me that I'm spending too much on this. Right? We think then I'll be happy. And we think it's a shortcut because you pull out the map and for half a second you're like, woohoo, I got a shortcut. And then you get on that road and you realize it's not a shortcut. Sin oversells and underdelivers. And God in His grace doesn't say, you're gone, you're out of here, I'm wiping you off the face of the earth. What does God do? He says, now you are on a journey. Now I'm going to restore you. Even if you don't want to be restored, I'm going to take you through every turn and every bump and every old person stopping to see the sights right in the middle of the road so you can't get around them, taking up both lanes. And I'm going to do that because I love you and this sin will ultimately destroy you. I will restore you. But now, an hour journey has become a several day journey. That's what sin does to us. So if you're here, two things. One, don't give in to idolatry. Don't think that you're going to find ultimate happiness and ultimate purpose and ultimate meaning in anything but God. And don't try and elevate the importance of anything in your life above the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do, it will hurt and it will be a long journey. Some of you are in here and you're saying, wait a minute, I've already made that mistake. I'm dealing with consequences and some of these are lifetime consequences. For you, I would say, don't give up. Don't be middle of the road and say, you know what, I don't want to do this because the only other option is to drive it off the cliff. And God doesn't want that. Taking that long journey, it's longer, yes. You see other people, they're going further ahead and you're like frustrated. Yeah, but you know what? God loves you and He wants to restore you. He wants to use you. 
He wants to mold you. He wants to shape you. He loves you. He cares for you. That's why He sent Jesus Christ for you. So don't get off that, 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 that long bear-tooth pass and say, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. The only other option is to drive it off a cliff. He doesn't want that for you either. So we learn from Israel here, look, restoration is possible, but it is a long, long process. When we elevate something above God, restoration is a long process. That's possible with the help of Jesus. Surrender everything to Christ. Let's pray. Father, my sin and the idols I have built up in my life are extensive. We buy the lie so often that things will make us happy. And for the moment, they do. But pretty shortly after, we realize we, we made a wrong turn. Father, help us to realize that there is no life apart from You. There is no peace apart from You. There is no hope apart from You. There is no joy apart from You. There is no true comfort, lasting comfort apart from You. So Father, I pray for our congregation. May we flee from idols. May we flee from all of those things that we think will find happiness but will ultimately destroy us. And Father, I pray for us as a congregation. You'll help us to tear down those idols. You'll help us to repent when we've sinned. And on that long road, you have us winding back and forth, up and down in the frustration as you're restoring us. Help us to sit in your grace, realizing that you're doing this for our good, that you love us, that you don't want us to, to, to wipe us out. And you want to actually have us to see your glory. Not like Israel, seeing your glory and being terrified. But people who see your beauty as your beauty. I pray for all of us who have sinned and gone so far astray that You restore us, that You fill us with the joy of Your salvation, and that us as a congregation, You help us to walk together in the love of Jesus. Each of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us in our own way. But the solution is the same. The Lord Jesus Christ. May we trust in Him and His death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. May we look forward to that day where we are made totally anew in the new heaven and new earth and pray, come Lord Jesus, come. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.